At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, Gene Shepard, uh, from May of 1966, May 13th, 1966, which, uh, hmm, looks like it may be a Friday program. By the way, if uh, you enjoyed the... Uh, the show last week about the Holy Land, uh, there are a few more in that series. If you want to hear more of those, oh, I don't know, call me or write me. Let me know anyone's listening. Uh, my email address, uh, mschmid, M-S-C-H-M-I-D, at rcn.com, or max at oldtimeradio.com. Uh, in the meantime, though, here's one, uh, one that we were considering for last week, and we'll hear it this week. Uh, the title I have on it, World War II Kitsch and Embracing Our Fears, however, after giving it a quick listen, seems to mostly deal with kids' myths, and we hear from an actual kid on the program. So without further ado, yes, yeah, one of Gene Shepard's rare phone calls on the air. So let's listen to this episode from May 13th, 1966. Gene Shepard, right here on WBAI New York. Switches are going out on us around here. I will award the brass figlegi with bronze oak leaf palm to any lonesome traveler on the yellow brick road of mediocrity who wishes to rise above the mire and the muck of common listenerdom who can identify who, what, and where was the phrase used, are you ready, has he? Where was that used? Who used it? In what context was it used? Why was it used? Yes, all these mystical questions are those that should be answered before we can continue with tonight's effort. Bring it up there, Fred. Hey, Carl. Oh, one more thing uh, as a disclaimer. Uh, this program tonight is being done under strong protest. I have filed an official protest with the league president. We will carry on until the decision is raised. Oh, keep the love light burning. Yeah, be careful. Mr. Shepard tonight is filled with love and compassion for his fellow man. 
And then, no wonder. Let's see. Here's a note here. It's a full page out. Have you seen this ad? Are there certain ads that are, uh, with you, flow-up making? You know what I mean by uh, sick making? Now, what was it that Dorothy uh, Parker said? It's enough to make you flow-up? She was referring, of course, to Winnie the Pooh. And, uh, <laughs> oh, wow. And there, oh, yeah, this is the kind of uh, ad I, I suspect that would appeal to those who are hung on Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore. Uh, there is a certain kind of woman who'd rather press grapes than clothes. Uh, you seen that ad? There's a certain kind of woman who'd rather press grapes than clothes. Yes, and there she stands, brave unashamed, staring into the sunset. And behind her, like a prop, is this little native village, which is merely one of the accessories to her exciting grape-treading life. I repeat, there is a certain kind of woman who'd rather press grapes than clothes. And then down at the bottom, it says, photographed in Cusco, Peru, one of the difficult countries. How would you like to be classified as a difficult country by the New Yorker? And uh, even more than that, by pack and pack and pack and pack and pack and pack. Uh, what was the famous line? Who was the famous line who was writing about that store? And he wrote to his daughter who wanted more money to pay the bill, see? And he says, so, uh, dear so-and-so, I got your letter with the bill in it from pack and 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 he filled two pages with pack, pack, pack and pack and pack. Who was that? What what writer was this? We'll agree you the brass figure. If you think you know your American literature. All right, this is Gene Shepard broadcasting from the heart of America, one of the world's more, come on, let's go, one of the world's more difficult countries. Bring it up there, bang. You can tell it's Friday night, and there's blood in the eye. Why is it I'm the only one who knows who wrote that line? Pack and pack and pack and pack and pack and pack. Why? Why do I have a huge garbage can of a mind? I do not remember Pearl Harbor. I don't remember the Battle of 1066. I don't even know what date it happened on. But I remember little tidbits of life like that. There you go. Uh, that's enough. That's enough. But keep that in abeyance there. We will need that for a later thing. Oh, here, listen to this. Uh, would you please uh, hold that banjo music there ready ready to hit it hard? Okay, listen to this one. Beeville, Texas. Ed Singleton, who was hanged in 1877, willed his skin to the prosecuting attorney who convicted him. What a fantastic Perry Mason episode that would make. I repeat, willed his skin to the prosecuting attorney who convicted him. Singleton directed that his skin be made into a drumhead. That was to be beaten to the tune of old Molly Hare in front of the B County Courthouse on each anniversary of his hanging. Oh, there's a man with style. The only thing is that the item doesn't tell whether or not they went along with his will. Unfortunately. Have you ever had, when you were a kid, did you have that myth that the last words of anybody, you had to do it? 
Or whatever the last words, you just had to do it. <laughs> and, you know, this is one of those folk myths that kids have, you know. That, that, uh, oh, yeah, sure. I, I remember as a kid all, all the time, you know, when, when you're playing, when you're playing, uh, with the uh, with the guns and stuff, and you're either the bad guys or the good guys. You remember playing bad guys and good guys? Are there any ex good guys out there who turned bad in later years? <laughs> or or are you at that stage in life where you can't tell whether you're a good guy or a bad guy? Not quite. Well, when we were playing good guys and bad guys, I can remember falling to the ground heroically. And practicing getting shot dramatically. Uh, you know, you lay there like this, your arms out. You, you, the, I suppose you're aware that there's nothing that an actor likes more than to die on stage. Providing he has a lot of lines before he dies on stage. I have known actors who've been dead off stage. They carry him out, and then they carry him out the other side, you know. And I said, there goes the body. At the <laughs> oh, I'll never forget, you know, sad, sad thing to talk about actors. Since uh, we want to talk about the business here, uh, people always like to hear the inside of the, the business. This friend of mine uh, used to carry around this little case that had all of his credits in, uh, all the things he did. And all the things that he did consisted of things like, for example, he had a big blown-up picture of the time that he was on the U.S. Steel Hour. And he'd take it out. He'd say, well, of course, uh, uh, this uh, was when I was doing the U.S. Steel Hour. And you saw 400 GIs lying on a prop hillside, all of them dead, all stretched out, see, with, a, you know, dirt all over them. And you could see his foot, and he said, that's me. That was uh, U.S. Of course, I worked with Sidney Lumet on that one. And uh, uh, here, here's when uh, I uh, did the Mr. Peeper show, and he would take this one out. And here's a classroom of 58 kids, or 58 people, say. And Wally Cox is up in front of the class, and he's... He's teaching the class, and you see an algebra problem on the board, and you see all these guys with the hands up. He says, uh, uh, "There I am, there. Uh, see, I'm behind the guy with the big ears and the glasses. You can't, you can see my shoulder there. That's me. Uh, of course, I uh, worked with John Frankenheimer on that one. The whole Frank calls me all the time when he wants somebody to sit behind guys with big ears. I'm very good at that. I raise my hand. Now, uh, this one here is one I did uh, the Kraft Music Hall, and it shows a train blow up of a train." And you know how the interior of the uh, car, where the hero and the heroine are walking down the aisle of the car, they've just gotten on the train, there's 45 guys sitting there reading the Wall Street Journal. He says, so that's me there with the derby hat. There, just for the... Well, to that, to, today, that guy is one of the top movie stars in the business. All of a sudden, he made it all the way, just to the top, all the way to the top of the world. And I saw him about a month ago, and I said, Say, do you remember when you were carrying around the pictures of the time you played the dead soldier in the scene on John Frankenheimer's drama, The Day? Gee, I don't remember that. Who told you that stuff? You're making that... Oh, come on, you're kidding me, you're making that... And I realized that he had erased the whole world, a whole world outside of his world. He erased it, say... You know, speaking of whole worlds, last night... I was on the Merv Griffin show. And um, uh, it's a fascinating world, these TV shows. You can, you can judge the TV show by the amount of hangers-on that are behind the scenes. There's a great horde of, of human jackdaws 
a great horde of, of humor. Oh, sure, I'll, I'll never forget the, the first night I came to New York and I got involved, you know, with the, with the world of the comic and the world of the humorous and all that. And I'm down at Lindy's. And, uh, of course, that's, you go through that going to Lindy's phase when you're first coming to New York. And I'm sitting in, in, uh, in Lindy's with this friend of mine. We got a pastrami sandwich. And, and uh, he's a comic, see, and not a very successful one. Got a pastrami sandwich. And I got a, I got a, uh, big uh, roast beef sandwich were sitting there and all of a sudden this flying wedge came in if you can imagine 37 people coming in through the swinging doors at once in unison they managed it i don't know how they did it this little swinging door all of them came through at once a whole human flying wedge of little guys and they're laughing uproariously and you can see their their hats bobbing up and down they got the white on white ties They've got the, the ducks panties haircuts sticking way out in the back, you know, and they got sideburns all the way down to their knees. They've got camel hair coats. And this famous comic was coming in with his coterie, his little portable audience that he carries with him. And uh, they settled down like a great herd of starling. You gotta hear their wings go. They settle down at the center table and the kingpin is right in the middle, like a giant human toad. And everything he would do, he'd say like, oh, pass the mustard. And say, oh, 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 is he really on tonight? Oh, he's just great. Oh, okay, man, here's the mustard. Oh, say, waiter, waiter, uh, uh, bring him some more uh, ketchup, please. Oh, and the, these fantastic crowd of human starlings quacking and yelling. <laughs> and and uh, my friend sat next to me, see, my friend, the second-rate comic, and he says to me, well, he says, you know, one day I've just got to do it. And I said, what? Milt, what do you got to do? He says, oh, I've just got to go out and hire myself at least 25 toadies. He says, I've got to run, uh, just go out there and have them run interference for me and trail out after me and, and circle around me like a large crowd of human satellites just circling around. Well, last night I'm, I'm sitting backstage and, and you could hear in all the other, all the other dressing rooms this, this cacophony. Of, of uh, human, uh, well, they're starlings. They really are like starlings. There's a certain, you know, there's a certain they talk through the side of their beak. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're really like that, see. And, and they're sniping butts and yelling and hollering and scavenging and squeaking. And, and uh, I can hear them in the other dressing rooms, especially one, which I will not even go into. It's a wild scene there. Uh, of course, there was a special kind of human starling in that other dressing room. There was more twittering and fluttering than there was cawing and cackling. A different kind of starling. And so they're, they're, uh, they're down there at the other end, and I'm sitting in my dressing room all by myself on that leatherette chair, and all of a sudden the door opens, and in walks a guy. It's an eerie thing to meet somebody and to be involved, and to sit and talk to somebody who has always been mythical to you. I've often wondered, yeah, you know, mythical, but I mean mythical, it's a kind of a creature that is part of your world so much that you just accept them as part of the world. Like, like say, uh, Spencer Tracy. You know, he's lost, the, he's no longer a real human being. He's Spencer Tracy. It's like the sun or the moon or, uh, you know, the, the ocean. Uh, can you imagine a, a knock on the door and you open it up and it's Spencer Tracy and he says, say, uh, may, can I use your phone? Well, how do you handle this? Well, the door opens and in walks Arthur Treacher. Now, now, <laughs> Treacher is really kind of a mythical character. You know, he's, he really is. He's been thousand movies, and just about two months before, I had seen him on a late, 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 late movie, wearing a derby and carrying a bumbershoot. 
and looking vaguely pained and above it all. And he was, he was, he really was. He was looking out of the backseat of this Isada Fracini, looking bugged. And the Isada Fracini was going downhill, and the chauffeur had fallen out of the car. And he was playing with absolute aplomb. The car was going downhill. He was not going to raise a hand. You see, he was a gentleman's gentleman, and they do not touch steering wheels of cars. And he's sitting in the back there, and he walks into my dressing room looking exactly like that. And he looks at me and says, oh, by George, I know you. It's, it's Archer Preacher. You know, the butler, I expected a tray. Well, he's trying, George, I know, of course, I know. Of course, absolutely, you're that nut. <laughs> it's not easy to be called a nut, you know, by a myth. It's Jupiter coming down to say, oh, you're that idiot. I know you, of course. And he flutters away up to Parnassus or Euphrates or wherever it is that they go, you know, or Olympia. Oh, of course, we're not nut. And then he took a look at the girl who works with me. Just a brief pause. Before he walked out, he looked at her right in the eye and said, Oh, what George, what ho? And left. <laughs> Carrying over his, the crook of his arm a malacca cane. How do you like that? And he was also wearing a whisket. I haven't seen a guy wear a whisket outside of the ads in a thousand years. A whisket. And he had that, that quality of a man who, if he had said, Sir, you need a good caning to within an inch of your life. He not only could have given them caning, he had the cane to do it. And he was prepared to do it. Ah, oh, horse whip you within an inch of your life, sir. How'd he sweat? He said, what ho? Now, speaking of horse whipping, this is WOR AM at FM New York. Hit the whoopee button, please. <laughs> Well, this is really WBAI New York, FM only. Another highlight, the champagne of bottled beer. That's Miller Highlight. The happy sound is about famous Miller High Life beer that has soared in popularity because millions more recognize the traditional quality and heritage of an unequaled, unchanging, truly great beer. Wherever people are living better, you'll find Miller High Life in handy take-home cans, on tap, or in the familiar crystal clear bottles. Next time you want the very finest, ask for Miller High Life. The champagne of bottled beer. Sparkling. Flavorful. Distinctive. Chana, chana. It's a very loud commercial. Right. Should we do a subtle one here? How can you do a subtle commercial for a motorcycle? You know, as far as I know, this is the first time uh, motorcycles have entered the world of uh, general advertising. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody's advertising outside of, you know, magazines. Uh, the motorcycle we are advertising, of course, is the Honda, and in particular, Fleischmann Honda. If you're preparing or thinking, even uh, remotely, seriously, of buying yourself a motorcycle, contact Fleischmann Honda, because uh, they're the largest Honda dealers in the East. They have a superb service department. They have the entire line of Hondas on, on uh, tap there, including uh, the competition models, all the way down to the little fuchsia-colored ones, you know. For the chicks and the vinyl raincoats, so on. 
But uh, they have them all, and this is Fleischman Honda. And the one, the place that I go to is out on Queens Boulevard in Woodside, uh, one mile west of New Macy's. You've probably been near there. Uh, by the way, the Honda that I ride, in case uh, you're doubtful about the fact that whether I do or don't, is the 305cc Super Hawk, a very angry Honda, and not recommended for elderly ladies with uh, false dentures. Let's see, we have uh, Long Beach. <laughs> out. Oh, no, not at all. Let's shake you right loose, I'll tell you. Uh, a grotesque thought. Uh, Long Beach. Long Beach Boulevard. There's one in West Islip on Sunrise Boulevard, Sunrise Highway, and one in Bayshore. And the new one, which is out on the North Shore in Douglaston, Long Island. Fleischman Honda on Northern Boulevard in Douglaston. Okay? Now, we also have Rover with us, if you prefer to travel in exquisite style. The uh, Rover 2000 TC. I am amazed at how many people are talking about this car. They even brought it up on the uh, the uh, that show that I was on last night. And, uh, yeah, somebody mentioned it. Who was it? Ann Jackson? How about that? Wouldn't you like to be so filthy, rotten, rich that you give as a gift to somebody a new rover just so they don't get mad? That's what Eli Wallach gave to Ann Jackson last night, according to Ann Jackson, on that show that I was on on TV. And, uh, and, 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 and uh, he looked at her. The MC of the show looked and says, Rover, what's a Rover? And I, I didn't, I, you know, it's like saying dirigible. What's a Zeppelin? Uh, this is a, a, a fantastic car, and the Rover 2000 TC is particularly engineered for American driving, which means it has a little more horsepower. Uh, it'll hang on the turnpikes and uh, whip along at 80 miles an hour if you're that type without even breathing hard. Beautiful design disc brakes, and it's made to last. Rover 2000. Oh, and uh, let's see, we got to mention the limelight. Oh, by the way, speaking of the limelight, uh, I keep getting letters from people asking if I can make reservations at the limelight, which I can't, and I don't want to. Uh, however, uh, as a word of advice, almost everybody who comes down to the limelight on a Saturday night, if you're thinking about it and you don't have a reservation... Uh, gets in in one way or another. They make a terrific effort to get people in down there. And usually there's about a half dozen people who chicken out, uh, who don't show. Uh, they always keep a few extra seats and so on. So if you are running the, if you're, you know, if, you, if you'd like to run the, uh, the gamut, if you, if you figure you'd like to come into New York and make the limelight scene tomorrow night, uh, the odds are excellent that you will get a seat. And if you want to know where it is, it's down right in the heart of the pulsating Village. I mean, you know, passion flows like a rich, deep river of uh, uh, down the streets there. It's uh, it's the village, and it's Seventh uh, Avenue South. You come right down Seventh Avenue, and there it is, the limelight. People keep going around looking for a place called the the uh, lighthouse, and they wind up somewhere where they give free clothes out. And uh, you know, <laughs> it's a fact. Everybody keeps calling it. It is the limelight. Don't ask me why they call it that. It's the limelight, and we'll be down there, and I'm going to do my famous pantomime uh, tomorrow night, which has gotten me into a lot of trouble on other and previous occasions. Last week, we got into a little misunderstanding. Two of the Greeks didn't show up. Uh, we had lined up for our Greek chorus. You know that Greek wine? Even though it tastes like turpentine, it does it to them. And uh, they didn't show, 
And so this week we are planning our famous recreation, totally in pantomime, of what we call our uh, Neo-Electra series. And I think you'll find it superb. It comes on the first half of the show. So if you listen, there's just a lot of gasping and wheezing and yelling and people knocking over ketchup bottles and squeaking and ladies uh, uh, sounding embarrassed. You can hear the police coming in and all that. That's because the first half of the show will be in pantomime tomorrow night. We'll be here from uh, 10.30 until midnight. Okay? Limelight. And, uh, I'm, you know, I, I look all, all week I look forward to going down and doing that show. All week. Uh, there's, there's something devilish about an audience. It, uh, it gives a whole different flavor to the world, you know. Can you imagine a, a ball game? Have you ever seen a ball game being played in front of nobody? I played them. It's an eerie feeling. Uh, when the only cheers come from the coach at the third baseline. She's, hooray! You stand on second after you've belted the double off the scoreboard. Takes all the pizzazz out of the life that you're living. And that we will be at the limelight tomorrow. Oh, you know, speaking of pizzazz, all right, let's get back to reality here. I Am I the only ex-kid who lived under the uh, under the myth? You know, speaking of myths, kids always have these myths about the, uh, whatever the person's last words are, you've got to do it. Uh, did you ever have the golf ball myth at all in your world? That inside a golf ball, there is a liquid center. And it's either fantastically poisonous or it explodes. You ever have that myth? Did you ever have that thing going? You didn't have that thing going? Well, we were deadly afraid of golf balls. And whenever kids really to really wanted to play, well, no, we didn't have the acid one going. Ours, no, our myth did not say that it was acid. That may be the eastern version of it. The midwestern version of the golf ball myth was that the stuff that was in the middle of golf balls, you know, it's this liquid center on them, was poisonous and or it would blow up if you unwrapped the golf ball. It would explode. Well, whenever a kid wanted to really walk that narrow, thin line of danger, he would threaten to throw a golf ball in the fire. Or he would take his scalp knife and start cutting off the cover of a golf ball, peeling it back, see? And slowly, you know, the golf ball is made up of of about a 27 million mile long rubber band, you know, that's tightened, real tight, that's a long rubber. He would start unrolling that little rubber band, and it would get skinnier and skinnier. And all the other kids, no, no, stop it, look, ah, oh, oh, it's going to blow up, oh. And eventually, uh, the kid would either either uh, either blow up the crowd uh, or else chicken out. And that's usually what happened. He chickened out. And we have this great myth about that. Did you ever have a... And, and oh, one thing I must say, I am delighted to report now... Am I the only guy that believed that? You didn't believe that at all, Al? When you had a very dumb bunch of kids you grew up with, because uh, we had a complete mythology about various things that if you ask your old man about it, he'd look at you like you were a nut, you know? I'd say, Dad, do golf balls blow up? He'd say, oh, come on, get off my back. Golf balls blow up. And we believed that it was totally accepted. There was another thing that was accepted, and it had to do with, with condensed milk cans. Now, do you know about that one? That if you throw a condensed milk can in the fire, forget it. The neighborhood is gone. It'll just explode. Uh, the neighborhood will be blown up. That was an earlier nuclear fission concept. And is there a, an ex-kid out there whose crowd believed in that? I want to hear just one kid who says, yeah, yeah. Do they still believe it? That's something better. Let's do some technical research on that. 
Is there an ex-kid out there, or a kid? I want a kid. I don't want an ex-kid. I want a kid. Is there a genuine operating kid who is still walking around scratching and busting out, you know, and pimples and stuff? And is there a kid out there who still believes that golf balls blow up? I'd just like to hear from one kid and, uh, and see what he says about that. Find out if, if this myth is still... Uh, and is it a myth? That's a good question. Have you ever thrown a golf ball into a fire? Ever thought about that? Well, we had we had another one going, as I said, about the about the cannon. I remember one day, you know, you go through these periods of destruction. I learned something about why guys have wars. One afternoon, I am down in the basement, and there's a lot of stuff down there and junk, and we had we had a we had a shelf. On the side of the wall, under the, under the steps, and my mother put all the ball jars on, the canned jars of, of, uh, of uh, tomatoes and all that jazz. And she had about five cans of carnation milk. And I've got a can, one of the little ones now. And, that, you, know, that, 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 uh, you know that great feeling of illicit, doing something rotten? That feeling of really doing something that you know is a terrible thing. I took the can of carnation milk. And I'm down in the basement. It's raining out. I'm by myself. My kid brother is playing in somebody else's basement somewhere. My mother is not home. My old man isn't home. And all you hear is the sound of clocks ticking in the house. And I'm a sweaty kid down in the basement. I have looked at all my dirty magazines and I've hit them again, you know. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just, I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking for scenes. I'm looking for trouble. Not really trouble. I'm looking for the precipice. The abyss. We always search for this. Freud talked about it, you know. Searching from that for that void. That that thing. You notice there's not one kid out there? The kids are too hip, you know. I, I, I know there's not one kid out there who believes this. If there if there is a kid who believes this, he's sitting by the phone out there, he's too chicken to admit it. He thinks that I will make fun of him. <laughs> That's better, you know. He's so I don't want to say it again. Gee whiz, Shep, don't don't break all my illusions. Don't cut it out, you know. And I am down in the basement, and I'm creaking, creeping around by the furnace. Now we had a furnace in our basement, which was unbelievably handy. You could do all kinds of things. Not only have fires in it that kept the house warm, but you could start fires in there, just burn things, you know, just fires. I bet there's not one place in most kids' house today where you can safely set a fire. You know, you take a match and light something and burn it, unless you've got a fireplace. And I'm creeping around. Oh, is there a kid out there? Yeah, I, I, I can tell in a minute if he's a phony. Hello, kid. Yeah, put it on. Hello, kid. Hi. Hello, kid. Yeah. Uh, what about golf balls? Well, there's a myth here that uh, the acid, there's an acid core. Yeah. That when you take the golf ball apart, uh -huh. you get this little ball of acid. Yeah. And if you cut it open and get it on your hands, it'll eat away your hands. And you're done. Yeah. And it and it'll just eat right up completely. Yeah. And you'll probably not live. True. That's true. Poisonous. And uh, do you also have a uh, a a great fear that if you ever get a hold of a certain kind of pencil, and you get it on your tongue, an indelible yeah, pencil. Yeah. That it will kill All you. Pencils. Yeah, and and it's poison, right? Yeah. And you'll you just won't live out. Turn past. purple. Turn purple. That's it. Exactly. You turn purple, and that's it. You know, and, and your mother comes home, and there you are. You land there purple. Yeah. And it's because you weighed an indelible pencil. 
Uh, did, did you? What what other uh, deadly things are out there that you fight against? Is there anything else like that? Inks. Huh? And inks. Oh yeah, inks are deadly. Yeah. And uh, if you get if you get ink on your tongue, right? Yeah. And if you get it under your skin, did you ever have that one? That if you write on the back of your hand with with your pen. No. And and if you you know like you 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 draw an anchor on the back of your hand and you pierce the skin and you get the ink under your skin, mm. it could very well be the end of you. I never heard that one. Well, you better think about that one, kid. I will. I saw at least three kids go west on that one. Hey, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you know my name is uh, Schaefer. Yeah. And when it's German, and when it's translated from uh, uh-huh. German to English, it means shepherd. Oh, really? I'll bet you're in trouble, too. I am. Okay, kid. <laughs> now, you see, that is that is a deeply held belief. Now, kid, are you out there, Schaefer? You listening, kid? At long last, they are not going to laugh at us anymore. I have before me scientific information that has come in Science American. Scientific American, a very official magazine... And this was given out by the people who make uh, Omite. This is Omite News. And Omite is a top-flight electronics outfit, kid. Listen to this. The centers of golf balls are contained under very high pressures from 2,000 to 2,500 pounds per square inch. For years, children have believed that cutting into these balls will have a tremendous explosive effect, possibly acid, will... Uh, uh, will be uh, exuded, which can be deadly. The kids are right. That's the answer. (laughs) I'm delighted to hear that, you know, because for years I've always walked around golf ball displays with a little sense of fear that one day the entire display at Abercrombie & Fitch is going to go up and blow up the whole east side. Now, there's a a whole series of kid myths along this type. And, and 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 there was there was a terrible fear one time that spread throughout the Warren G Harding the the uh, the cockamamie scourge. Now uh, that is a phrase I never heard until I came out here to the east. In the east they call it cockamamie, and that's this transfer. You know the thing that you you make wet and you put on the back of your hand and you peel the paper off, and there it is. There's a picture of uh, Old Faithful, and underneath it says Old Faithful. And you walk around, you show it, Old Faithful. <laughs> you know, they had great selections for, for the things like, like Old Faithful. They had Grand Canyon. I had the Grand Canyon ones on the back of my hand. Did you ever see this kind of thing that was was very popular for about for about a year? It was it was uh, related to the cockamamie. We had the co- cockamamie scourge. Somebody passed along the rumor. It probably was a, a killjoy-type teacher that this contained, you get blood poisoning. From cockamamies, you get blood poisoning, and uh, you know there was a, hardly a kid that didn't have at least seven of them on him at any given time. You put them in very strategic places a lot of times. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, you know I thought, that's another story which I won't even go into here. Places I put these transfers just to see if it would take, you know, and it did. You know? <laughs> it was just great, fantastic. It was, it was an early attempt at uh, truly dynamic pop art. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we used to show each other that you know our transfers, and we'd hide in the bushes. We had transfers, all kinds of. All, and we used to try to talk Esther Jane Albury into putting transfers on her, 
But, the, you know, how girls are. You should put them on her hand, you know, something like that. It's, Come on, Esther. Look where we got them. <laughs> well, we had the whole cockamamie myth that, that if you got the, if the, if there was a, the blue ink, I think it was the blue. Kids are very afraid of two colors ink, blue and green. And sometimes the purple is bad, uh, like the uh, indelible pencil. Well, a thing became very popular. I don't know whether this was just in our area or whether it was also out here in the east. There was a thing you held under the sun. You would, you would not know what it would be. It was some kind of photographic process, really. And you would hold it under the sun. You, it had a little piece of paper. You would strip the paper off. You'd get this thing, say, with bubble gum. Yeah, I think it came with bubble gum. That's right. It was a card-like. And you would strip the paper off, and underneath it would say mystery picture inside. Hold under sun for four minutes and then soak in warm water. You remember that? And you'd strip the paper off and you'd hold it under the sun, say, for about four minutes or five minutes. And then you'd take it into the bathroom and you'd stick it under the hot water and you would wait. And out would come a picture of Dizzy Dean. Uh, yeah, or, or there would be... a. Uh, there was there was one that I remember specifically because I was astounded. I did not realize these guys knew my grandmother. My grandmother had a picture of this Indian. And uh, I remember as a kid always looking at it. It was the worst picture, I think, in the Western world. There was this Indian sitting on a horse. Did you ever see that picture? An Indian sitting on a horse, and there was a sunset behind him. And he started looking down... And you can see the feathers, and he's in he's in silhouette, and underneath it it says the end of the trail. I don't know who painted this turkey. Uh, I, I have no idea, except that my grandmother had this in her bedroom, and she would look at it, and I, I'd look in there, I'd look at this Indian sea, and my grandmother her her eyes would all puddle up whenever she. I didn't know she knew any Indians. I had no idea about that, but there was this end of the trail. And one time I took my cockamamie and I heated it under the sun and I stripped it. And up comes this picture of the end. Underneath it says, end of the trail. Did you ever see that picture or did I invent it? That's one of the... You know, have you ever thought about that, the universal pictures that everybody has seen? Who painted that? That's one of the most famous pictures. All Americans have seen that picture. End of the trail. Then there is another one, too, that is very similar to that. It's a whole bunch of horses. What is that one with all these horses? And underneath it, it says something like Horse Fair. The title of it is Horse Fair. Did you ever see that picture? Uh, this is another universal picture that I... That I, I um, you haven't seen that one? Well, maybe that's more out there where they know what horses are. Here in the east, the horse is a thing that's on a merry-go-round at Coney Island, you know. But, uh, <laughs> no, Horse Fair was, was another one. Uh, there was another picture, too, that we used to see constantly that was on, on practically every calendar at one time or another. Universal picture. Absolutely. And it was this chick standing in the water looking embarrassed. Uh... Horse Fair is by Rosa who? Bon her? Rosa Bon? No, Horse Fair. No, this it is. Well, who 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 did the end of the the end of the trail? Uh, that that uh, that is probably even more famous than the Horse Fair. Then there was one about the dog. What was the one about the dog? Eighteen, a big curly, fuzzy looking dog, and the dog looked like it knew more than a Supreme Court judge. You know, that kind of uh, anthropomorphism where the dog was about to, to write the Constitution 
or come out with the Human Bill of Rights. You know, speaking about this nutty kind of, of sub-art, this is, this is really pop sub-art. Uh, it's, it's not art, it's, it's the stuff that people live by who they think it's art. They think it is art. Uh, there was an Indian, there was another one too. There was an Indian picture with an Indian with a big war bonnet up and he was in profile. I remember that picture. I saw that it was even on the back of gloves. It was on the front of, of, uh, of, uh, yellow tablets with blue lines. This same Indian. I wonder who drew this. Can you imagine a guy actually sitting down there and he, he is drawing, he is painting the end of the trail and it is destined to become one of the great all-time cliches forever? <laughs> and nobody knows his name. Absolutely. He's totally unknown. Speaking of, of uh, great art cliches, I got this spy, see, and he wrote to me and he says he has just been uh, in this place out in California, see. And he says he's walking through the store, and they have a whole big collection of uh, of lead statuettes that are gilt. Uh, they've been gilded, you know, lead. They cost uh, 59 cents, that kind of the big, that awful art. You know that kind of awful art that, that did you see in the dime store? The leopard, the black leopard made out of uh, porcelain or something, and he's got this gold chain with uh, imita imitation rhinestones in the eyes. I wonder who it is who gets us. Isn't that pretty? That is just beautiful. And uh, the, you know, the people who buy this kind of stuff is very. Uh, and and he said that he he got one of these statuettes. He said he had to buy it because here it is. It's a statuette of the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima. You know all these Marines putting the flag up and they're raising it. It's all guilt. He says it's terrible. You know it's all. It's all, uh, it's a bad mold, and it's real rough, and it's gilt, and it looks real funny. And they're raising this thing up, and on the bottom, of course, it says, the flag raising at Iwo Jima, the Marines uh, on the shores of Tripoli, and, and all this is, the whole business of the Marines, and it's all in gilt. That's a big thing. He says it weighs four pounds, and it's real terrible, 98 cents. And on the bottom, it says, made in Japan. <laughs> Now, that presents a fascinating picture. Can you imagine this little ex-Japanese GI working at a factory where they make lead, uh, he, uh, raising the flag at Iwo Jima statues? And, and he, says he, he says why he really bought this. He says all the eyes on the statue look rather odd. Maybe it's wishful thinking <laughs> or fantasy fulfillment on the part of the guy. And he says, and he's got this. Now, I'll tell you, if... if if you think this is uh, this is one of the great oddities, I think people uh, love. It's one of the paradoxes that, that seem to go against our mind because I, I think the great ocean of the uh, subjective soul, the id, the superego, the ego, all these things that float down from our brain control us far more than, of course, this one little tiny, little minuscule jot up here that is called the mind or the intellect. I was in, in Munich. I couldn't believe it. Here I am in Munich, and I'm... Munich. Do you know anything about Munich during World War II? Munich was about as bare as a, as a miniature golf course in February. I mean, it was leveled. Munich had, There must have been 5,000 air raids on Munich, and 97.9% .9 of the town was destroyed. While I'm standing on the street in Munich, looking into the window of a toy shop, they had the most fantastic collection of U.S. World War II 
bomber planes on display. You couldn't believe it. There was the B-17, there was the B-24, the B-26, the B-25. Then there was a whole flight of P-38s, P-47s, and all made in Germany. And who was buying them? Germans. Right? <laughs> I mean, the guy who just a few years ago was hiding in a hole when the B-17s flew over, now he's buying a, a toy B-17 made in Germany. Now that's that. That uh, I looked at that. I couldn't believe it. So I went into the I went into the toy store and I says, uh, I says, say those are. I, I I never saw anything like this. You don't see this in American toys. You know, you see a few little planes and that, but you know they're not so specifically so specifically identifiable. You go into the dime store here and they've got a lot of plastic planes. You know, and they may have a little jet plane or something. Like that. But here was a World War II bombing armada on display. And obviously they sold millions of them because it was everywhere I went after that I began to see them. They were all over Germany. And so I go into the store and I say, say, that's, can I see one of those? Uh, and the girl said, are you interested in a P-38 or the P-47? And I says, uh, well, uh, that one over there. And she said, oh, you are talking, of course, about the Lightning. And she knew all the names, the Lightning, the Thunderbolt, the whole scene, and I take I take this lightning and I look on the bottom and it says "Made in Germany," and I I, I looked at this thing. It was such a beautiful model. I began to formulate a little theory in my mind that the very thing that we fear most, we secretly embrace the quickest. Uh, this is an old cliche, but you see it better in life. You know, kids are almost always afraid of the doctor. In a subtle thing, they are. They're afraid of dentists and doctors. But what is it that kids play more? than doctor. Kids are continually playing doctor. Uh, what uh, We're all secretly afraid, you know, of all of a sudden finding ourselves on the, the third floor of some, some very uh, esoteric hospital with the lights and all the things flashing and the machines. The most successful television shows in the history of TV have been medical shows. I'm just waiting for the day when finally there is an entire series played by uh, Vince Edwards. He's out of work now, isn't he? I mean, old Central Hospital or wherever that hospital is, they finally did away with Ben Casey, and he's, he's now he's reduced to reruns. Uh, <laughs> I, can you just see Ben Casey or uh, Vince Edwards now playing in the new series, this new dynamic series, The Camp Undertaker? <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, it could be called uh, it could be called Whispering Glades, and uh, there he is every day. And and each each day there is a new episode. Uh, some new glamorous uh, loved one has arrived, and uh, Vince. What was his, what would his name be? Um, uh, Smiley Thanatosis. Uh, Smiley, <laughs> and uh, old Smiley standing there, and it opens up, and da 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 cha cha cha. I think that thing would get a rating that would not stop. I've often thought, I've often thought of the dynamic, uh, all the, uh, the dynamic orthodontist series that opens up with a light coming closer and closer to you. You see, and it, the theme is the sound of one of those drills going. Oh, we'll be here tomorrow night from 10.30 until midnight, the limelight. Be the first. Gene Shepard from May. 
1967. That wraps up this morning's Mass Backwards. We'll be back next week with uh, the British Invasion, more ZBS radio drama, and more Gene Shepard. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.